Love you all. What a glorious Lord's Day. We have, oh, we've been blessed this past weekend. Many of you were here for this conference that we held. Friday night was here at St. James. And we had 60 in attendance up here, 27 downstairs, of which five or so were AHG workers, two moms, and some of their teen daughters. AHG is a uh, very quality Christian um, alternative to Girl Scouts that Tammy and Carrie are leaders and Lily and Jenna participate in. But it was glorious. Brent Campbell did a good job exposing us to what's out there. Uh, Saturday morning, he did a job giving good counsel to the men and then the teens likewise. So praise God. Thank you to Amy for her vision and leadership in this, to the Women's Ministry and the Christian Discipleship and Growth Committee and the Hospitality Committee. Women of this church literally spearheaded it, undergirded it, and blessed it, and it was good. And this momentum will continue this Tuesday night in the men's Bible study at 7 o'clock. We are studying Sinclair Ferguson's book, Devoted to God, which is essentially what Brent Campbell talked about Friday night, that it takes a higher love to overcome the love of evil. And devoted to God is all about falling so in love with Jesus <laughs> that you don't want sin. And you eventually can say, I don't even want this life. So that's Tuesday nights. Julie Ganshaw from Raining Grace will be here. I do not know the dates. Check the website. Women's Retreat, likewise, October 22 through 23. And then our prayers go to Don Walters upon the death of his mother. Uh, that was two days ago. Eileen. Glorious praise, contemplating where she is. Larry and Lynn from Florida, Scott and Chris from Branson all send their greetings to you. And the Mefferts are not here, but continue to lift them up as Anne did go home on oxygen. That was earlier this past week, so we keep praying for them. Fellowship groups, as Mitchell very adequately said, Today would have been the Walters, but for each communion Sunday we have a fellowship group. So I hope I've not forgotten anything that I needed to say. Take your Bibles and let's stand together and I will read John 17, 20 through 26 and we will come to the conclusion of this incredible High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. John 17, 20 through 26. God's Word. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the apostles, but for those also who are believing in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, are in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst 
send me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them, even as thou didst love me. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known thee, yet I have known thee, and these have known that thou didst send me, and I have made thy name known to them, and will make it known that the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them, and I in them. Let me pray. We are awed, full of wonderment, Lord, as we consider this dialogue deep in the heart of the Trinity, graced to us by the Spirit through the pages of sacred writ here. But it's amazing to us <clears throat> to look on and contemplate the, the relationship, the attitude, the approach, the things said that have been from eternity between thee and thy son, between you, Lord Jesus, and your blessed Father. And so we come humbly with grateful hearts. I pray that our hearts will be soft and open, that our wills will be malleable, able to be shaped by thee, that there will be no stiffening or hardening of the neck in our presence, but that we will give you glory. We thank you for all that has transpired, and we bless the triune name. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I suspect it has been said by many a preacher before, the feeling of inadequacy to approach this text of John 17. And of particular concern, <clears throat> discussing with my blessed wife last night, <laughs> clarified for me what I think the struggle has been. It's one thing to seek to exposit, explain, pull out doctrine, make application. It's another thing to properly approach this blessed prayer with an attitude of reverence, quietness, Isaiah cries out, woe is me, upon encountering God. This is 
sacred ground. So, here in the 17th chapter of John, we have been given this precious gift from the Holy Spirit, the high priestly prayer of Christ, in which he references the eternal joy, the eternal glory, the eternal love that has been forever between the Father and the Son, through and in the Holy Spirit. And John has recorded the true flow of a high priest as they would pray once a year, that they would first focus, because a high priest had to make offering for his own sin first. All priests had to. Jesus didn't. But a high priest would first focus on his relationship to God, second upon those for whom he was specifically praying, and then the wider circle of what God is doing, and that's Christ's pattern here. So in verse 20 of 17, he initiates this wondrous for us statement in prayer. This final part, He moves beyond his eternal, joyful relationship with the Father in heaven, beyond his concern, love, and yes, intercession for the chosen apostles gifted to him by the Father, to then pray for all those believing, it's a participle, believing into me through their word. Those believing into me through their word. Observe the belief in Jesus is into. It's not the Greek word in. It's ice is the Greek. But it has a specific meaning. It means to believe into Jesus. It's not that you believe about things about him or you believe that he was a good moral teacher. That is not the concept. It is believing into, faithing into, trusting into, relationally moving into in pursuit. And you'd only be doing that because he's already been pursuing you. And that's the blessed, blessed, glorious thing. So I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for those believing into me through their word. While faith begins in a one-time event, it does not stop there. Your life is to be a demonstration of a living, vibrant, dynamic, relational movement of faith, of trust. Faith, saving faith in John's gospel is active, it's dynamic, it doesn't, it's not static, it doesn't sit there like that bulletin on the ledge. It's a dynamic thing, a relational movement towards Jesus. And hear me carefully. You cannot do this if you're not known in heaven as a man or woman of the book. You cannot say this is descriptive of me if I'm not a man or woman or boy or girl of the book. Brent cited some fascinating studies that have been done. Brent Campbell from Raining Grace. This was Saturday morning. And he said, a, a very la- I don't know what the control base was made of, but it was substantial. 
of Christians who read their Bible. And of those Christians who read their Bible one day a week, I decided to sit down, I'll read some scripture. It had virtually no effect upon them. Which is to say, if all you're getting is what you get on Sunday afternoon or morning, someday soon we pray, it's not sufficient, brethren, it's not sufficient. You can't ride into heaven on the coattails of a pastor, a parent, or a creed. It's got to be you with Jesus. But Brent said, so of those who read their Bible focusedly one day a week, no real change. Two days a week, not much change. Maybe a touch more, but very little. Three days, there was beginning to see, and they were analyzing behavior and speech and relationship with wives or husbands or parents, uh, work ethic, purity, a time in scripture versus on the screen, lusting. It was when they found those who decidedly focused four days a week to sit down and be reading systematically through a portion of scripture that radical change came. Radical change of changed behavior, changed speech patterns, lessened profanity, more love to Jesus, a desire to serve, to minister, to reach out. How is it with you? Wouldn't it be a shocking thing if God suddenly put uh, neon robes on all of us who perhaps are men or women, boys or girls of the book. And I'm standing up here with, I ain't got no neon robe. Or you're sitting next to somebody who has it and they don't. Heaven knows. Heaven knows the pathways that we are walking, seeking the Savior's voice. So you're encouraged because of Christ's words. He's praying for those who believe in him through their word. That's the apostolic word recorded and scripturated called your New Testament. So Christ gives a wider range to his prayer, which that was an application part of the sermon too. Christ gives a wider range to his prayer, which hitherto had included the apostles alone, but extends it to all disciples of the gospel until the end of the age. And you think they could have imagined 2,000 years later us sitting amidst all this. Wow. And yet, what will the Lord allow to the age of the earth? But to the end of the age, Jesus prayed. And this is assuredly a remarkable ground of confidence. For if we believe in Christ through the doctrine of the gospel, we should have no doubt that we are already gathered with the apostles into his faithful protection so that no one of us shall ever perish. Calvin says it beautifully. This prayer of Christ, verse 20, is a safe harbor, and whoever retreats into it is safe from all danger of shipwreck. For it is as if Christ had solemnly sworn that he will devote 
his care and diligence to our salvation. <laughs> Blessed be his name. Ye have God's promise that ye shall have his presence in fire and water and every valley. He who hath promised is faithful. Trust in him. Well, Christ began praying for his apostles' salvation first, which we know to be certain, that it might make us more certain of our own salvation. So when Satan attacks us, let us learn to meet him with this shield. And it is not to no purpose that our blessed bridegroom, Jesus, has united us to the apostles so that the salvation of all is bound up, as it were, in the same bundle. Brilliant concept, Calvin. Indeed, there is nothing that ought more powerfully excite us to embrace the gospel, for it is an inestimable blessing that we are presented to God by the hand of Christ to be preserved from destruction. So we ought justly love it and care for it above all things. In this respect, this is Calvin, the madness of the world is monstrous. All desire salvation. Christ instructs us how to obtain it from which, if any, turn aside, there remains for him no good hope. And yet scarcely one person in a hundred deigns receive what is so graciously offered, end quote. I saw that in the prison. 3,800 men we had when I landed there in 2006. Of 3,800, Fully 1,900 claimed to be some form of Christian, predominant Christian Baptist. How many truly walked with Christ? Hundred, couple hundred that I encountered that I would assess, yeah, they were walking with Jesus. But many had it on their inmate ID. Ain't going to help them any more than it'll help you if it's not real between you and Jesus, you and Jesus. But again, observe how our blessed Savior expresses himself, quote, I pray for those who are believing into me through their word. The Son of God does not approve of any other faith than that which is derived from the doctrine of the apostles. Do you catch that? So he's not approving of Joseph Smith's writings or the New World Translation or the writings of the Buddha, Confucius, Taoism, or the Bhagavata Vita. He's speaking, I'm praying for those who believe in me through their word. That is the New Testament Holy Scriptures. So where are you nurturing, building up your faith pursuit of Jesus Christ? What book of scripture? I'm heavy into John, as well as the minor prophets right now have been camping in Hosea, Joel, and finding 
wondrous descriptions of my Savior. I encourage you, and brethren, you need to encourage one another. Brent spoke, Campbell from Rain Grace spoke Saturday morning of the need for accountability partners. Who is yours? Who is yours? Timothy had one. Titus had one. Who looks you in the eye on a Sunday morning and says, so how's it been? How's your walk with Jesus going? Hmm? Uh, here's where I've been reading. What have you been taught by Christ this week? Who is your accountability partner? We need that. We need that when we become isolated and alone and we can masquerade, put the mask on, and look like the part, but inside we're, we're dead or hurting desperately. From the truth about porn conference yesterday, if you don't have a plan to engage the scripture, almost certainly you are not reading it as you need to be. And so the first question might be to your dear friend that you love in Christ here, what's your plan? And then, so where's the plan putting you, taking you? Scriptural hopscotch is not what Jesus is talking about here. Does that get the point across? Scriptural hopscotch is not what Christ is addressing here. And if you've never read the whole of the Bible, that's probably a good place to start. 1 Peter 2 instructs us to, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow up in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Oh, check that out, that verse, 1 Peter 2, 2. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the words, so that by it you may grow up with respect to salvation. Caveat. If, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, have you? Begin a pattern. Open it up and pray. Spirit of God, Lord Jesus, open my eyes here. Speak to me. Cause a verse to leap out at me with conviction. Guide me, train me, mold me into your likeness. Doctrine. The expression who believe in me through their word means that faith springs from hearing because the outward preaching of his preachers is the instrument by which God draws us to faith. And so the Shorter Catechism, question 89, says, How is the word made effectual unto salvation? And the answer, The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effective, effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Question 90 instructs us, how is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? 
Answer, that the word may become effective, effectual to salvation, we must attend thereunto with diligence. Biblical hopscotch is not diligence. We must attend thereunto with diligence, with preparation. That would probably mean have a plan. Our website under resources has five different Bible reading plans. Pick one, just pick one and start following it. Diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts. That's memorization. Memorize scripture. As was said Saturday morning, if you read the same passage like he said, I've been reading First Peter for a couple months, four or five times a week. It's just five chapters. You get to where you know what the chapters are made of. You unexpectedly are memorizing scripture. Scriptural hopscotch doesn't do that. But faithful, diligent plan through a book of scripture. And if you need guidance, if you need guidance, talk to one of our elders. Talk to me. Because we love you and pray for this church daily. And while I'm thinking of that, thank you to Mitchell, who is singing for us, helping proclaim the Father's praise most adequately. And thank you to Mitchell and Dave and Steve Heil. All three men are, have been set aside as RE's. They're not presently an RE at Providence, but we have only one RE with us today. <laughs> and so he will be helped by the three men who we appreciate. Verses 21 through 23. Scan it. Christ's goal is that we, his chosen ones, be one, united. For the ruin of the human race is that being alienated from God is also broken and scattered in itself. This scattering took place early in earth's history at the Tower of Babel. One language they were in rebellion against God. God struck them multiplying languages, laying the basis of all the languages upon the earth, and thus the people were scattered, creating an inability to unite in rebellion against him. But in our day, in our day, the Tower of Babel has been rebuilt through the internet. Only we are not talking so much in words as the globe is now talking in images. Yes, we have a new Tower of Babel. It's the internet. But it's not a communication with one language of words. It's a communication of images. Hence the importance of the conference we just experienced. Because in our day, this modern Tower of Babel's capacity to communicate violations of all ten commandments in heavens is ubiquitous and fully in rebellion against the high king of heaven. As we look at Christ's prayer, let Paul's words in Ephesians 3.11 echo in our ears as he says, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers 
for the equipping of the holy ones, holy in Christ, the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. When Christ here speaks of believers being one, he gives understanding by referencing that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. Look at the verse. And that believers, therefore, are to be in them. So it is because the believer is in Christ, to use Paul's typical description of the Christian being positioned in Christ, and because Christ is in the Father, all those who are in Christ are brought into this relational oneness. Now, he's already prayed about that in John 14, 23. Anyone who obey, keeps my commandments, the Father will love him. And we, the Father and me, we will come and make our abode in him. Through the Holy Spirit, the Father and Son, triune, relational, love, joy, and glory live within us. Thus, his prayer is answered. It just doesn't always look like that, does it? But it has been answered. Calvin, we infer that we are one with the Son of God, not because he conveys his substance to us, but because by the power of the indwelling Spirit, Christ imparts to us his life, his presence, and all the blessings he has received from the Father. So Christ is not only, and, and thinking caps on for this sense, Christ is not only the lively image of God, insofar as he is, as he is the eternal word of God, but even on his human nature, which he has in common with us, the likeness of the glory of the Father has been engraved so as to form his members to the resemblance of it. That's a heap of theology, but beautiful. On Christ's human nature, which he bears in common with us, the glorious likeness of the Father shown then. Philip or Thomas, have I been with you so long and you do not know? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 14. And thus their intent, Father, Son, and Spirit, is to shape us to bear his resemblance more and more. <laughs> Am I thinking about that? Do I look more like Christ, honey? 
this month than I did last? Are you beginning to see Jesus in me more? That's the goal. That's his goal. 2 Corinthians 3, But we all with unveiled faces looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Oh, the joy, the eternal bliss and joy of seeing the blessed face of Christ Jesus. And oh, the impact that first sighting will have on our souls for all eternity. But now we gaze through scripture into the eyes of Jesus, watching, listening. Lord, transform us into thy image. Lord, imprint thy character, thy love, the love of your heart upon us, that others might see you in us and not us. Mm. Well, verse 24, Christ wondrously here intends us to understand that in him dwells all fullness of blessings and that what was concealed in God was manifested in Jesus Christ. And here is the wondrous image of Ezekiel's river of life flowing from the throne of God, watering the fields of Emmanuel's land. Calvin is wonderful here. He says, here is a very excellent pledge of the love of God toward believers which the world is compelled to feel whether it will or not, when the Holy Spirit dwelling in them sends forth the rays of righteousness and holiness. These are innumerable other ways indeed in which God daily testifies his fatherly love towards us, but the mark of adoption is justly preferred to them all. Hmm. What eternal joy that when our Savior appears, we shall be like him and shall see him as he is, remade into his image as a righteous man, a righteous woman, a righteous child of God. But in the meantime, much renovation is needed. First John 3, 3 says, Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Much of the reason, brethren, I'm convinced that he leaves us in this miserable world is time for purifying, time for readying for the glorious land of paradise forever. But look at the last phrases of verse 23. Thou didst love them even as thou didst love me. It is inconceivable by the human mind that exercising benevolence towards men whom he could not but hate, he removed the cause of the hatred that there might be no obstruction to his love. 
I'm not much like that. How about you? Think of somebody that you really can't stand. And maybe you are justified in not liking them. What would it take to go to the effort of removing all that causation and reaction and bitterness and anger? That's how the heart of our Father is. Thank God he's not like us. The Father chose us in him before the creation of the world. In Christ God has reconciled him us to himself and hath showed that he is gracious to all. Thus we are at the same time enemies and friends of God until atonement, having been made for our sins, we are restored to favor with God. But when we are justified by faith, it is then properly that we begin to be loved by God as his children. This is Calvin. Now, verbatim, that love by which Christ was appointed to be the person in whom we should be freely chosen before we were born and while still ruined in Adam is hidden in the breast of the love is hidden in the breast of God and far exceeds the capacity of the human mind. I know from counseling, pastoral counseling, that sometimes people have come to so much pain and grief through a child or through children that words have been said, I wish we never had children. God created this world knowing exactly every rotten thing you and I would do and he still did it. And then he saved us and chose us. Thank God we are saved. And thank God he is not like us. If you were Baptist, there would have been a resounding amen on that one. 17.24. Deep water. Deep, deep water. Calvin tersely starts saying, this agrees better with the person of the mediator Jesus than with Christ's divinity as God the Son. Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. Christ speaks of the ones the Father has given him. He desires them to be with him where he is, will be. And in order that those gifted to, to the Son may behold his glory, which the Father has given him, he prays. And then finally says, For the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. <clears throat> doctrine on this verse and it's like we're dropping a bathosphere straight down in the Mariana Trench at this moment this is from 
Godet commentator in the early 1800s, speaking of verse 24, one sentence, two sentences. This saying of Jesus is that which leads us farthest into the divine depths. It shows Christian speculation on what path it must seek the solution of the relations within the Trinity. Love is the key to this mystery. Deepest of deeps to understand the Trinity. Deepest of deeps. Oh, if you have some philosophical embracing of unity and diversity, and therefore there's one God in three hypostatic persons. Do you understand that love between the Father, Son, and Spirit is the deepest, ultimate truth, reality, expressed and received relationally? within the triune God from before the creation of the world, do you think that should have an impact on our behavior? Do you think it should change how my face looks? <laughs> what level of joy and radiance I have because if he's that kind of a God of love, why do I look so sour and why do I speak so caustically? And why do I distrust him? Why am I filled with such fears and anxieties? It's because we're not looking at him. It's because we're not looking at him. And brethren, if he's taught me anything through the last year, if you continue to camp in your troubles, you will sink. You've got to look to Jesus and fall in love with him and what's coming. And then, oh, the troubles don't go away here. But then he gives you joy and peace and you can make it through. But return to his request that we behold his glory and listen again and ponder Daniel 7. Verse 11, I think. Daniel 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will never pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Here we behold the glorious presentation of the second Adam, the Son, sent from heaven to return to heaven as the victorious and now vindicated new Adam, in whom all the chosen, saved children the Father gave him, would one day be led in procession back by him back to the Father. 
glory, glory, glory. The Father loved the Son and purposed in him to establish a new Adam over redeemed mankind. And here in John 17, the second Adam prays to his Father. But consider some other pictures from the old which portray the glorious reign of the Messiah. I told you I've been reading in Hosea and Joel. This is Hosea's picture. 14, Hosea 14. He will blossom like the lily. And he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree, and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain, and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Joel chapter 3. And in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley. Mm. Daniel 7, Hosea 14, Joel 3. From portrayals of Christ's reign in power, authority, and a kingdom that's everlasting to a wondrous pastoral vision of what must surely suggest Edenic conditions when the Messiah reigns. New heaven and new earth. What glories await the children of God in a new heaven and a new earth restored and beyond the original Eden of the first Adam. <laughs> well, in the final verses, Christ declares that he came out of the bosom of the Father and he alone knows the Father. Matthew 11 tells us his words, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Calvin says on 25, The Son came out of the bosom of the Father, and properly speaking, he alone knows the Father. Therefore, all who desire to approach God must betake themselves to Christ, meeting him, them, and must devote themselves to him. And after having been known by the disciples and knowing them, Christ, the eternal Son, now mediating Messiah, will at length raise them to be presented before God the Father. Do you look for that day? 1726, dearly beloved brethren, here we are told that the love with which God loves us is no other than that which he, with which he loved his son from the beginning. 
so as to render us also acceptable to him and capable of being loved in Christ. It's because we're in the second Adam that he loves us. What an eternally invaluable privilege of faith. Well, a couple of very simple doctrines. One is the priority of the New Testament and the priority of his children in every day and age devoting themselves to exploration, listening, study of Holy Scripture. Application. The Father loves us even as he loves his eternally begotten Son. Now that ought to have an impact on your self-image. That ought to impact the things you struggle with, knowing that the Father loves you as he loves his Son, because you're in his Son. Finally, the centrality of love within the trying relationships centrality surely must be seen in Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 13. Can you say it with me? And now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I used to, as an Armenian, wonder, why is love the greatest? You now know, if you didn't already. Father, bless this holy, holy text to us. Help us to see the wonder of what you have done and achieved on our behalf as you prayed for us even. Even in this pre-Gethsemane moment, you were praying for us and loving us as those who would be and are believing into you through your word, their word, the New Testament. Father, now we come and we approach this Blessed Holy Communion Sunday, we pray that you will touch us and let us, not just with our heads, but with our hearts, sense and feel your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. On this, the last Lord's Day of September, we observe this sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion instituted by our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you are here this day and you profess the gospel of Jesus Christ through both word and deed, and that's carefully said, if you confess this day the gospel of Jesus Christ through both word and deed, if you trust yourself to be one of his children and are in good standing with an evangelical church where the gospel of Christ is preached, we welcome you to participate in this sacrament. But first I will read from Matthew 26, Matthew 26, verses 20 through 30, the words of institution which tells us when evening had come, he was reclining at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say, Surely not I, Lord. 
And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Likely they all had dipped their hand in by this time. John alone tells us that he whispered to one whom I give this to, and he gave it then, and Judas was the one. 24. The Son of Man is to go as it is written of him, but woe, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Remarkable thing, Christ says then. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. It would have been good for Judas if he had not been born. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread and after a blessing broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup, given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Incredibly, after Christ said, one of you will betray me, all of the apostles passionately ask, surely not I, Judas alone. And you read it there with me, verse 25. Judas says, surely it is not I, Rabbi. Judas is committed to Jesus as a good teacher, a great moral person. He taught a good ethic, but he could not bend the knee to him as Lord. And observe Christ's impassioned statement that the Son of Man is to go, be, to go as it is written of him, but woe to that man if he had not been, if he, it would have been good for him if he had not been born. Here is an incredible statement juxtaposing divine sovereignty with human responsibility. The hyper-Calvinist says Jesus is conveniently saying this because the truth is God created Judas just to damn him. But you'll recall last week what Calvin says of that. That is stupidity, to quote Calvin. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign. Yes, he has created man to be culpable and responsible. So Christ says the immemorable words, take ye, this is my body. He took the cup, gave thanks, drink from it. Recall his statement. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And Matthew tells us that this cup represents his blood, which is poured out for many. But now... Beloved member of this church, visitor, be warned of the danger of eating and drinking like Judas in an unworthy manner. And thus at that point of specificity becoming guilty of the body and blood of the Lord 
literally eating and drinking judgment to yourself. If you harbor and nurse unforgiveness, bitterness, or resentment, for your soul's sake, do not partake. Go to your brother. Seek healing in the relationship. Then come again to the altar. Beware of roots of bitterness. Such a one beguiled by Satan has no place at the Lord's table. Brothers, if you'll stand and prepare, we will now distribute the bread. And then as one, we will pray and partake, remembering his words. This is my body. Reclining at table, scripture tells us, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks. Father, thank you for the gift of bread upon the earth. Thank you for providing for us. But thank you for this, the gift of thy body. And remember, Jesus said, this is my body broken for thee. Let us take and remember his body.
coming before him as the music plays. says following the bread Jesus took the cup and I would reflect with you upon the reality that the entirety of the final discourse took place after the Lord's Supper he prays the prayer of John 17 after saying this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood this is my body this is my blood taken in remembrance of me. Blessed Father, we thank you for this holy sacrament which lets us not just hear with our ears but feel with our hand and taste with our lips and tongue the reality of eternal truths in heaven. Your body gives us free access back to the Father. Your blood has paid the price for our sin. We bless you. We love you. Hear us now as we sing a hymn of affirmation, even as your disciples did. In Christ's name, amen.